I always love that song, love singing it. It's got a great bass part in it. That's part of the reason I enjoy singing it. Well, today we're going to talk about uh, resting in peace. Now, if I were to ask you, where do you most often hear that phrase, rest in peace? You would probably say, at a funeral. That's what we say about it, rest in peace. And uh, we rarely ever say that to somebody who's alive, like, Cheryl, rest in peace. Now, ironically, our souls kind of fret over death. We're kind of worried about it. And the very thing that causes rest and peace to fall so easily from our lips, uh, because that we're sometimes worried about the end times and not the present times. We have a great difficulty to say to somebody else, you know, Nancy, rest in peace. May your soul rest in peace. But in this psalm, Psalm 116, verse 7, we find someone who does, in fact, call upon the Lord or call upon his soul to rest. Verse 7 says, Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. So the question is, as you're looking at the psalmist, there's a guy who's writing this new song. What is it about him that helps him break through to this place of peace, a time of peace for his soul. And how can we get there too? Because you know, Christmas sometimes, there's a, there's a lot of hectic stuff. I mean, I was telling somebody this morning, uh, I'm preaching today, Tuesday, I'm teaching an entire book of the Bible by Lehman at First Baptist. And then Wednesday, I've got to complete First Timothy chapter 5 at Praise and Worship. And then next Friday at College of Ozarks, I've got to talk about the 10 things that were wrong in the trial of Jesus before his death. And then I still have to preach the following Sunday. So we can kind of go, oh, wow, that's hardly a peaceful week. So how does someone in today's society who's busy uh, find a time of peace for their soul? Uh, So we're going to look at the rest of the psalm to figure this out. And the first thing I'm going to tell you is the journey to this place of rest uh, for our souls always begins with what would you put it? Close. Had the first two letters, right? Prayer. We're going to start with prayer. We don't know the exact nature of this psalmist. We don't really know who he is, what his prayer request was. But we do know that his life seemed to be in danger in some way. And the way he, he is grateful to God for the rescue, for answering whatever prayer it was he prayed. So let me read again the first four verses. He says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. So we already know he's praying because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. Now, the snares of death, whatever those might have been that were out to get him. He says, encompass me the pangs of Sheol. And I mentioned last week, we saw that word Sheol is that Hebrew word for hell or the, the place of the dead and the dying laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice again, it said all caps again. That's that Yahweh. That's the that's the God of the angel armies. We've looked at that word before. He said, oh, Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Or another way of saying that is, Lord, give peace to my soul. Now, something we ought to note here is that the psalmist does not say someone out there is looking out for me. His prayer could hardly have been, you know, something or someone or somebody hears me. Uh, could you please? Uh, but instead, in this psalm, he, he's a, he speaks specifically to the Lord, this creator of the universe. 
And, and he does not have some generic idea of who God is. That's why he uses this word Lord. And as you track through this psalm, you're going to notice something. He uses God's specific name, Lord, Yahweh, but in most English translations, I think it's 15 times he uses that word just in this one psalm. And so he's praying to a God who uh, he knows uh, because God has made himself known. Now, we're going to have a very visible way later to see God making himself known through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. You know, Bo today is going to see God being made known in, in the life of his friend who's being baptized. God makes his way known as Jeff stands by his bomb and prays for you. Let's, he makes God be known. And when we hand out food, we let God be known. And he's a God who leads us then to our very next thought. It says the journey to this place of rest again, a place of peace for our souls, begins not with our prayers, but with the one who hears our prayer. See, prayer works because God works with grace. God works with mercy toward us. If you look at verses 5 and 6, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord pre preserves the simple, and if you want the blunt definition of it in Hebrew, the, the foolish. <laughs> He's dealing with the foolish people. When I was brought low, in other words, when I was distressed, He saved me, He deliberated me, He delivered me, He, he liberated me. Now, at, at times, if you're anything like me, I think we kind of take a low view of ourselves when we think, we sometimes think, maybe God's not really listening to my prayers. I mean, why should God care about Barry? Why should God care about Lou? Why should God care about anybody? Well, we do that sometimes, but really we're guilty of taking a low view of God. Not a low view of ours. Oh, God, God couldn't be interested. Come on, folks. God's a little bit different than you and me. We're doubting the scope of God's love. Now, Psalm 116 has a caution here. It says, watch out for the dead end roads in your search for a resting place, a place of peace for your soul. And there are a lot of dead ends out in this world today to find peace for your soul. Now, prayer sounds kind of like a very religious thing to do. And a lot of people assume that religion somehow is the path one should take in order to find peace for their soul. But there's a danger here. Uh, made worse by the kind of a temporary feeling of peace that a lot of false religions out today cannot provide. For example, uh, I want you to imagine a man who thinks he has made peace with his God and therefore can conserve God best by blowing himself up and a whole bunch of people who stand around him on a street corner. Now, this man is saying to himself, return my soul to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. But what will he say the day he stands in front of the judgment seat in heaven? He's going to find out that his religion has failed him because he had no true relationship with the real God. See, religion, and a lot of people practice religion in our country today, but they're not practicing a relationship with Jesus Christ, the living God. It, religion, rather than a relationship, has a kind of a horrible habit of giving people kind of a, what we call, a false sense of relief 
for their souls when really they ought to keep seeking. Now, likewise, many people turn to a lot of non-religious ways like you know, Darwinism was popular uh, any number of years. It's still around. Uh, secular humanism is still around. Uh, they're looking elsewhere for a place to rest their souls. Now, I can kind of remember some um, some billboards. I don't remember how many years ago, but the billboard said something like this. God probably does not exist, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. Um, uh, no, thanks. <laughs> I think it was kind of my response. See, people who believe in signs like that uh, will also stand before God at the judgment, uh, but with the realization that their what, non-religion uh, has failed them every bit, every bit as much as the religion of the so-called religious people. I mean, I've been asked before, oh, so you're a religious guy. I said, oh, God, I hope not. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be just in that kind of thing. And I kind of think people have a kind of a small view of what that means. So it is the Christian religion, if you will, which brings true peace to the soul. I say no. That's, it's not either. Our, our psalmist doesn't refer to a religion as the reason for his soul to rest. He says, it's not a religion, but it is the Lord who is the reason for our peace and rest. Don't we hear that at Christmas time? He's the reason for the season. Well, he's the reason for anything and everything. Verses 5 to 8, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. That includes a few of us. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return my soul to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you've delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. Now, you see, friends, religion is always something we do. It's we're going to do this and then God is going to love us. Or we do this and God will save us. If we do enough of this stuff, God will count it up at the end and say, okay, you ought to come in. You got you got the certain number of brownie points on my little book here at heaven. Uh, But rescue and salvation is something God does. Uh, we often get the cart before the horse uh, when we kind of sub- subscribe to kind of a, a, a religion and just doing religious things and uh, try to make God like us. But friends, to try to make God likes us, like us, you got to remember that God's always loved us. And there's a big difference between like and love. Uh, I mean, if you ask somebody to marry you and they say, well, do you love me? I say, well, I certainly like you. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to go over very big as part of your wedding vow. Do you take this woman? Do you, will you like her? <laughs> Probably not. There will be many number of days I'm not going to really like her very much. And you go, yeah, I'm not going to like him either very much. Uh, I'm going to love him, but I'm not going to like some of the nonsense he pulls from time to time. We get that stuff all mixed up, all kinds of stuff backwards. So it's not religion for the reason for all of this. Uh, religion is this rescue and salvation that God does. God not only likes us, but God also loves us. Uh, so he loves us. He's offered the rescue. And our, quote, religion is an expression of worship that kind of flows out of the knowledge of who God really is and what our relationship with him is all about. And the psalmist then commits to religious activity in response to rescue, but not in order to obtain it. Look at verses 12 to 14. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? In other words, what can I give back to God for all the good stuff he's given me? 
Well, I'll lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all people. So here again, you see, friends, it's not religion that leads to a resting place for our soul. It's a person. It's God himself. And it's kind of a final thing um, to take note of here in this particular psalm. But I want you to notice again as you go, you think through it, maybe read through it again later today. Uh, this psalm is from the prayer, is, is really different than the prayers that Jesus prayed when he was in Gethsemane and on the cross. Now, the psalmist here is really pleased that he's being rescued. But Jesus, if you remember, he wants the, he does not want the cup of, he wants, well, he wants the cup of suffering to depart. Jesus also said, I'm willing to feel separated. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the psalmist says instead, no, return my soul to your resting place, to your place of peace. See, there was no rescue for Jesus the day he was on the cross. But his rescue, his lack of rescue, meant that we were rescued and that we were brought peace. You know, when you get to be a certain age, I don't care what age you are, uh, but when you get to my age, uh, you suddenly see a lot of people that are around your age dying. And I'm amazed almost every day that I see somebody, whether they're famous or whether they're just a friend of mine or somebody I've met over the years, another one, to quote an old song, has bit the dust. Uh, And it kind of makes you stop for a moment and realize what your life is all about. But But the same thing is death lies ahead of every last person here today, but only the death of our earthly bodies. Now, you can go to a funeral and you can say, wow, he looked really good. Well, he's really not there. The body is there because it's not about that. It's where the soul is, where the heart that loves God is. First Corinthians fifteen fifty-five to 57 say, oh, death, where is your victory? You know, I hope we have a big celebration the day I die. I've already written out stuff I want them to play at my funeral. I want them to, I want John Meyer to come and sing. The cowboy rides away. <laughs> yeah, I, I want it to be a happy day. You ought to all be really happy that I'm gone to heaven. Not, you, you know, miss the temporary, but love the eternal. He says, oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is what? It's sin. The power of sin is the law. But, I just love, oh, that's a great Bible word, but. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Funerals ought to be victory celebrations. I don't want to send oh, V-I-C-T-O-R-Y, victory. You know, I'm not acknowledging it, but maybe put that in the funeral. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll put, it in, we'll put it in yours. Okay. So that leads us back to the Advent candle, believe it or not. What does this second week Advent candle stand for? Well, if you recall last Sunday, the first Advent candle, which is some places called the prophet's candle, represented hope. We talked about hope last week. The second one is often called the Bethlehem candle, and it represents peace. The Prince of Peace comes, peace on earth. See, peace is actually the central theme of all of Advent. 
but main focus week two. Now, one of the Christmas prophecies came from Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And it said, who's going to come? The Prince of Peace. When the angels appeared to the shepherds, they ended their message in Luke 2.14 by singing, Glory to God on the highest, peace on earth, on whom his favor rests. When little baby Jesus was hauled to the temple, and this old guy there by the name of Simeon spots Jesus there, he says, Oh boy, now I can die in peace because I've seen the Lord's Messiah. Now, on a broader level, the Bible talks about in various places about a spiritual warfare that's going on between good and evil. And we all struggle with that. I remember a Donald Duck cartoon. I'm just taking you back a ways. And Donald Duck was headed to school one day and then there was a cutaway and he got gears up in his head. He's walking. You can see the school out in the distance. And inside of his head was a little duck demon and a little angel demon that were fighting over the gears. <laughs> Which way will I go? Which way will I go? So there's always a struggle within us. I'm not all saying you all got little ducks up there. Uh, maybe you got your ducks in a row somewhere else. But there's always a struggle between being good and I guess we call it evil. Uh, or as Ephesians calls them, the struggle with the powers and the principalities. Uh, the combination of Satan fighting against our goodness uh, and humans fighting against God has made Earth kind of a continually a continual battleground ever since Adam and Eve walked out of the Garden of Eden. So what then does peace really mean? Well, peace is one of those words that people often use, but they don't always explain it very well. And I'm not sure I'm going to explain it very well to you today either. But depending upon which religion or philosophy that you follow, the definitions of peace can be amazingly different. In some Eastern religions, for example, finding serenity. I remember a, uh, I think it was a Seinfeld issue where, uh, a Seinfeld show where George's father kept saying, serenity now, serenity now. Uh, well, inner peace. Well, that doesn't do very much good. We all have different ideas of what it means. But we have to go back to the Hebrew and say, what is the Hebrew word? For peace. Anybody know what it might be? Shalom. There you go. Shalom. Uh, throughout the Bible, shalom is used in a huge variety of ways. When people were feeling uh, physically well, they would say they're shalom. That's Genesis 29 somewhere. In Numbers 25, verse 12, it says people who have shalom with God have his peace, his protection and his blessing. Uh, Judges 21.13 says people who have friendships with each other and have reconciled, such as the 11 tribes who finally made up with little baby brother Benjamin, have shalom with each other. Uh, there are hints in the Old Testament that shalom with God is to be an inner state that just comes from trusting him. I'd always say, you know, people say, maybe I could put it this way. So tell me what restores like. Well, there's a whole lot of shalom going on. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of peace. There, there's a lot of understanding. There's a lot of love. And and the thing is, does it does it just stay in the building? Well, let's hope not. Hope it gets out. Give it to other people. So in Hebrew, the word is shalom. But 
the Old Testament also talks about Israel having peace and shalom with God, even though that covenant and that peace was conditional. In the Old Testament books describing the founding of Israel and its history, um, we see how Israel's people made a covenant with God where he provided them peace and protection as long as they turned back to folly. In other words, quit doing stupid stuff. That's the cold literal translation. In Jeremiah 16.5, he also says, when the nation strays from following God, what does God do? He withdraws his shalom. I find that one kind of scary. Because I, I don't watch a lot of news, but just enough to see where it seems like God has been pushed further away from how we act and think and live our lives. Now, by the time Jesus appeared on the scene, Israel had been ruled by other empires for centuries. So shalom with God had been absent for many years. Imagine living in a country where God's peace was no longer there. And on a broader term, humanity lost peace with God when sin entered the world. Uh, From the moment Adam and Eve walked out of the Garden of Eden... All of humanity became sinners in the battle between sin and shalom exists. So this puts us into conflict with God. Uh, No humans, not since Adam and Eve, have been righteous, which means we're all in a state of rebellion. And this lack of peace presents a dilemma that the Messiah Jesus comes to resolve. So the question is, how does Jesus actually bring peace? Well, much has been said about how the Israelites were expecting the Messiah to come to be a savior and they would be redeemed from the Romans. And if that was the case, the Messiah would have brought peace by uh, ending the oppression. He would have brought peace by a string of of ending a string of failure rebellions. He could have sent all of his angels in and just beat the bejabbers out of the Romans and all those people. Um, But that's not quite the way it worked out. See, Jesus talked about peace a lot. Uh, During the Sermon on the Mount, maybe some of you remember reading that, go back and read it in Matthew chapter 5, he taught that peacemakers are blessed and they will be called sons and daughters. Are we peacemakers? At the same time, he warned his disciples that he had not come into this world to bring peace. In fact, he was going to divide people. You want the God of peace? You want the God of this world. You choose the vision. But then at the Last Supper, it's interesting. What does Jesus do? He says to his disciples that he would leave them soon. And no doubt the disciples were, where's he going? Where's he going? What's going up? Maybe Jesus sees the worried look on their face. And Jesus says in John 14, 27, guys, peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give you like the world gives, so do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Maybe you could plant that little thought in your mind as you come forward to communion today. In spite of the fact, I should say in spite of but knowing one thing that you've given the very body and blood of Jesus Christ, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins, at the same time he is saying to you, my peace I leave with you my peace. I give you not like anybody else. So don't let your hearts be troubled. 
just remember me. See, clearly the peace that Jesus gives is, uh, is not the same thing that the world is looking for. Um, he didn't come in to offer peace by overthrowing governments. And some people think, well, the best way to change the world would be overthrowing governments. Instead, according to Romans 10, 12, he brought peace for the Jews and the Gentiles. How? By dying for them. No battle. I'll just die for you. He became a sacrificial lamb. He died for humanity's sins. That's mine, Lou's, Jimmy's, and everybody's here. Died for all of our sins. He was the sacrificial lamb. And he was the one who made peace between us and our God. So everybody today who believes in Jesus' uh, divinity and resurrection, Scripture, at least in Romans chapter 10, says, uh, achieve peace with God. Their sins are paid for, and they receive eternal life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are all tempted to live without peace. It's difficult for us to remember that our peace is ultimately found in our status as believers. Today we ask, help us to see the times when we've lived without peace and forgive us for those sins. Set our minds on you that we may remember that you are the Prince of Peace and our security comes from you alone. And teach us that this peace is inward, everlasting, and can exist regardless of our circumstances. In whatever way you believe is best, teach us how to live in that peace every day. We ask for that in your holy name. Amen.